Well, we're continuing our new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, and I think I've mentioned several times uh, leading up to the series, 1 Corinthians is a book, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient first century church in the city of Corinth to address a lot of problems. There were a lot of problems in the church. And we started off last week with the important foundation that Paul lays out, and I want to keep pointing back to it. If we're going to talk about what's wrong in the church, we have to, we have to start with the foundation of what is right, right? And what is right is, is Christ and what he has done, that we belong to him, that we are God's church, that he is building this thing. He is the one who has saved us. He's the one who has set us on a different path. He's the one ultimately in whom our unity can be found. We need to be reminded of that regularly. So I hope that if you were here last week or you were watching last week online, that that's firmly fixed in your mind and in your hearts, because today we're going to jump into some of the problems and see why that foundation is so important. What, when we shift off of that foundation, what can happen and, and how Paul is going to be calling us back to that foundation again. So we're talking this morning about divisiveness. I've titled the message this morning, The Sickness of Divisiveness kind of cleverly tying into the series title, The Church in Sickness and in Health. We'll talk about both. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll begin. We're going to be going through chapter 3. We're not covering all of that text today. We're going to come back next week and go into the same group of text uh, verses here, and uh, you'll see how this plays together. I'm trying to draw out main themes as we go through that. Before we begin to read, I want to ask you to just, in your mind's eye, imagine some things about you and where you're at. Not now, but imagine you are a resident of Corinth. You're, a, you're, you're in the first century. You're, you're right in this city and in this mix of people that the Apostle Paul is addressing. Okay? And it's, this is a big city. This is a bustling city. It is a city that is full of people from all around the world. It's a Roman city. But because of its diversity, it is culturally and philosophically and religiously pluralistic. And I want you to imagine that, that you're strolling in the city one day. You're, you're walking along through the center of the city, and you're making your way over to an area that's called the Forum. The Forum is this large gathering center where there would be people engaged in shopping and, and dining and just sort of uh, leisure activities. It's the hangout spot in the city. And as, as you're walking towards the forum, you get closer to it, you begin to hear the noise of what is really the primary attraction that makes the forum so popular to visit. What you hear are the, the voices of the orators. The orators are, are out in force today. These, these public speakers, the, the philosophers, the, 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 the wise people who, who come and they, they take their perch in the forum and they, they give lofty speeches and they, they gather crowds among themselves. This is, this is the public square. This is the public square. This is where the, the diversity of all of the, the philosophical and religious and political ideas are exchanged. And as you approach, you notice that this is typical. The arguments and debates are at fever pitch. 
People are yelling. People are screaming at each other, both, both applauding the voices that they agree with and, and booing the ones that they don't agree with. You might even see a fist fight or two break out as people are, are, are so impassioned about the things that they're, they're debating here. And, and, and there's this exchange of, of things that are both beliefs that are deeply held on one hand and also just easily believed nonsensical rhetoric. There's important stuff being discussed. There's not important stuff being discussed. But it's all making people very passionate. This sounds like crazy chaos, right? It's, it's kind of nuts. But listen, that's Corinth. That's Corinth. That's what the city is known for. And it's something that the citizens take a lot of pride in. Factions and, and partisan divisiveness and, and polarization are the cultural norm. And the public square is primarily where it all happens. It all goes down. It's all heard. But it bleeds into all facets of Corinthian life. It's just part of the culture. Now, I asked you to imagine that you're there, right? So, so keep imagining that you're there. And here's the thing. You're not just a citizen of Corinth. You're also a new Christian. You've just recently been, been affirmed as a, as a member in the local church there. You, you believed in the gospel. You came to faith in Christ. And in part, you did that because this, 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 this counter-cultural gospel message of unity in Christ was so compelling, so counter-cultural, right? And it was, it was beautiful to you. The, the Christian ethic was one of love, not division. But something starts to change within the church. The, the, partisan, the partisanship of the, the culture around you begins to reveal itself in the church as well. The, the Corinthian church was in fact becoming sort of more Corinthian than church. That's the way they begin to, to look. And the public square had really just invaded the sanctuary. The community that was founded on love had lost its distinctiveness and it was beginning to break apart. That's where we're at here in Corinth. That's, that's why Paul is writing this letter. And again, we discussed last week he, he was, he's going to address a slew of problems. There was a slew of problems in the church. They were threatening their unity in Christ. And he begins with this foundational call for them to remember who they are and to whom they belong. You are God's church. This is the, the church of God. And this foundational reminder is absolutely necessary for them to grasp before we address the specific problems that were present in the body. So I want to ask you again, I hope we dressed those foundations fairly well last week. Do you remember? Do you remember? Because here's the first problem Paul needs to address. Problem number one. The problem is division in the church. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. 
coming right on the heels of all the, the foundational things Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There is division in the church. And it's helpful here to note that the Greek word translated as divisions in verse, verse 10 is, is schismata. It's, that sounds familiar because it's, it's where we get our English word schisms. It also means factions. I want you to notice that. This is, this is sort of group language here. Paul's concern here is not so much about divisions or conflicts between individuals in the church, although that was happening, but, but rather about a more widespread divisiveness between polarized groups or factions of people within the church. Unless we think this was some kind of, of theological or doctrinal division, right? He's, he's, he talks about, I am of Paul, or I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. These are obviously the leaders within the church, right? But don't think that it's, it's a doctrinal or theological uh, division because the, the rest of the letter doesn't indicate that there were really any theological schisms within the church. What the letter does reveal is that the nature of these divisions were more about differences in social status or in cultural ideology. Some commentators have mentioned that the I'm of so-and-so language that's used here is actually very, very similar to the political slogans that were used out in the public square. I am of Artemis, or I am of Caesar, I am of Rome. These were common slogans, and Paul's saying, you're doing that, but with church leaders. One commentator mentions that party spirit was a common fact of ancient city life, and that it was commented upon and lamented by more than one pagan author contemporary with early Christianity. So in other words, the tendency towards factionalism was present in Corinth long before Paul ever got there, long before the church was ever formed. What, what Paul is saying is happening here in the church is he's saying that these, these pre-existing political and ideological factions were still continuing to manifest themselves in the lives of the Corinthian church in, even after they've been converted to Christ. You've brought this in with you, and it hasn't really changed. So please get this, because it's, it's really important. The, the problem of divisiveness in the church was rooted in the broader culture's divide over political, ideological, and social issues. And this is important too. These divides then were just somehow being Christianized. They were being Christianized by turning 
certain leaders in the church into de facto representatives of those broader cultural factions. It's like they were, they were saying, within the church, if I'm going to follow Paul or, or Cephas or Apollos, how much does my guy look like and reflect and, and sound like my secular ideological leaders? Because that's why I'm going to follow that person. And this, of course, makes no sense to Paul. Look over at chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. This makes no sense to him that they would follow after a leader in this way, but he's more concerned with the underlying heart issue that would want to tear apart their unity in Christ for these secular cultural values that have no actual relevance to the gospel. Look at chapter 1, again, verse 13, the beginning, he asked this very important question, is Christ divided? The messy arguing in the public square was overtaking the unity of the church. And in fact, it was obscuring the gospel because it was taking the focus off of Christ. Now, as I'm reading this, and I'm saying this out loud here to you, I know not much of a leap is necessary to see how this problem relates to our current situation in 2020, right? Are you, we're, we're like, we're hearing this, we're going, oh, this sounds, this sounds really familiar, right? So I know there's not much of a leap for us to kind of go, oh, we get, we get what's going on here, but, but it needs to be discussed nonetheless. Here's the question, where do we start? Where do we start? I have wrestled with the application for this text for weeks now, for weeks now, and, 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 and it's this, there's so much that can be said here. As a pastor, I'm thinking there's so much that can be said pastorally. We could talk about this for hours. And you know what? We probably need to. We probably need to keep working through this. But for the sake of time this morning, I want to I focus on two applications that I hope will provide a helpful start for those conversations. And here's the, here are the two things. The first one is we need to recognize how and admit that the, the merging together of, of our cultural and sort of Christianized ideology, this rhetoric, is driving the church today. We need to admit and recognize how, how does what's happening out there, how is it being Christianized here, mixing together and driving us? And then the second thing I think that would be helpful is to identify the primary location of the modern public square. So when it comes to recognizing the conflation of cultural and this sort of Christianized ideology, I think we're going to find that the modern American church's problem is actually very similar to that of the ancient Corinthian church. Let me explain. As I've been thinking about 
What's the rhetoric? What's, what are the ideologies that are driving society? Let me ask you this. Would it be fair to say that, that in 2020, the dominant cultural ideologies that are most divisive in our culture would be political partisanship, um, questions of personal freedom versus community safety. So think like coronavirus responses. And social justice issues, including racial issues. Those, to me, seem like kind of the big three, right? Political divide, this whole response of personal safety versus community responsibility, and then, and then social issues, racial issues. And, and the thing is, is, is those, are, those are happening out there. They're very loud out there. And they've also affected our churches too, right? We're talking about these things in the church. And I want to say this up front, that's perfectly okay. Because these are all issues that affect our lives on a daily basis. And the Word of God has something to say about each and every one of these issues. There are gospel applications that will inform how we relate to each other and how we relate to our neighbors on all of these issues. In fact, there's nothing in Scripture that, that should lead us to divorce ourselves from social or political engagement. In fact, I think we could say it would be irresponsible for us to do that as Christians. The problem, though, the problem, and this is what the Corinthian believers had done, is this. It's when we, we subject our biblical ethic and worldview we make it subservient to our cultural ideologies. So the cultural ideologies are driving here, and our, our, our biblical or, or gospel-focused sort of worldview is subservient to that, rather than the other way around. Rather than saying, no, our, our biblical gospel ethic and worldview is here, and therefore any other cultural ideologies that we might engage with have to be subject to the scrutiny of God's word, the scrutiny of the gospel. And when we get that, that order wrong, when we get that priority wrong, that's what I mean by, by this idea of sort of Christianizing a cultural ideology. We, we, we can attach sort of a, a Christian lingo or, or Christian you know, conviction to it, but if the, if the cultural ideology is driving, it's just Christianized. Instead of what we should do, which is say, this is what the gospel compels us to believe. This is how the gospel informs how we should live, and then let that priority enable each of us then to look out on cultural values and either affirm them or deny them. Unfortunately, we're, we're too often formed, and I would say sort of wholesale formed, by our cultural values. And then we let that mindset determine for us what we believe the gospel is. What we believe good news is, right? And therefore, we will choose to follow as our leaders or associate with brothers and sisters within the church who fit that framework even if it's divided from the rest of the body. 
That's what I mean earlier when I say, how much does, does my guy or does my Christian tribe look and sound like my secular ideological tribe with whom I place the highest value? If that's the mindset that drives our allegiances, that will bring great division into the church. And of course, Christ will be relegated to the margins. Let me give you a couple of examples. I kind of shudder to do this because I don't know where to start with examples, but I, I hope this is helpful. For example, those who hold to a more right-wing, conservative, political, or social ideology may divide or possibly leave gospel-centered churches for more of a, a God-in-country sort of civil religion that laments the decline of traditional cultural values more than it does just about anything else. Or talks about the evils of, of riots more than the evils of racism. Or reaffirms the worldview that they see and hear 24-7 in more cons conservative media outlets. Or more left-leaning Progressive Christians are going to divide or possibly leave gospel-centered churches in pursuit of churches that are more socially woke, that talk about social justice issues every week, that, that constantly sort of trash their parents' religion and reaffirm the worldview they see 24-7 on more progressive social me or, you know, media outlets. And here's the, here's the thing, both groups and any other group that we might come up with as an example will justify their anger, their anger and their divisiveness by saying that they have the gospel on their side. How? Because they've so Christianized the secular worldview that they have that drives them that they now hold to a gospel, gospel that has been formed in their own image. And when this happens, that us versus them mentality that so divides our society also divides the church. The public square has invaded the sanctuary yet again. We have to be so concerned with this church. We have to be so on the, on the lookout for the us versus them mentality that, that, that's driving our society, no doubt. Is it driving us? Is it driving you? Us versus them creates white hats and black hats, right? Good guys and bad guys. It, it creates enemies. How do we respond to a perceived enemy? Do you remember what Jesus said about your enemies? If indeed them is really an enemy, even if they are really an enemy, Jesus says, love your enemies. Don't hate them. Right? If there really is a, an, a group of other out there and we're the church of God, the other out there is not to be seen as enemy but as harvest 
And do we recognize where the public square is found? Where, where are we, how are we being so influenced in this way? Where's, where's all this dialogue happening? Where is the division most prevalent? What's the public square? Anybody walking down to the forum this afternoon? I doubt it, but I bet you'll be on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. I don't know what they all are. Is not social media the modern public square? It is, right? It is. But listen, why is, why is that so dangerous? This is just pure pastoral application for you guys, all right? Why is that so dangerous? I'll give you, I'll give you a few reasons why I think it's so dangerous. The first one is this. It is always in front of us. You don't have to walk down to the forum, and then you get, and then you get to walk away from it and not let the noise be constantly in your ears. Social media is always in front of us. It is in your pocket right now. It might even be in your hand right now. I hope not. Even out there, right? And here's the thing about this kind of forum. Everybody, everybody gets to share their opinion. Everybody, right? Not to defend the orators of the ancient Corinthian forum, but at least they were considered wise. Everybody gets to share their opinion. Everybody gets to, to throw it out there. And, and, and thirdly, concerning, concerning to me, there is no face-to-face -face interaction with the interactions. It's really difficult to look somebody in the eye who you're, you're, you have a relationship with and say something rude to, right? But when they're on a screen and they're not really there, we'll say it because we're not thinking about it. And then these opinions that we're so willing to share and so willing to say so rudely to one another because we don't have to look each other in the eye, these opinions... We, have to, we don't even realize how much they're actually informed by whatever voice in the world wants to drive us. Because the algorithms are, are feeding your social media feed differently than they're feeding mine. And both of them are saying, this is what's true. So I am surrounded by only things that affirm the worldview that I already seem to have reinforce to me how, how true and important it is that everybody believes this way so I can share articles and share opinions that reinforce that worldview. No wonder if your algorithms are telling you a different one, no wonder why we're fighting. There's a million reasons why. Can I just... Can I just say this again? This is pure pastoral counsel. What are we doing? If you recognize that, that that's the nature of the ideology, that's where it's coming from, that's where it's being reinforced, that's where it's driving wedges between us, what are we doing, church, engaging in that? Our world needs more light, less heat. 
Think about this. When you're on social media, are you an illuminator or are you an incinerator in the public square? That's a 2020 modern application for a text that Paul's writing to first century Corinthians. They have, a, they have different, different circumstances, but the heart issues are still the same. Paul's, Paul's saying, this is exactly what you're doing. You're, you're letting what's going on out there drive you into groups, and then you're fighting amongst each other. That's the problem. What's the, what's the health issue at stake here? This is the second thing I want to examine. The health issue. Bottom line, it's this. Paul's going to say, this is spiritual immaturity. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This, this comes on the heels of a fuller discussion in chapter 2 about the differences between mature uh, spiritual discernment and foolish worldly thinking. I'm not going to cover that today. That's what we're actually going to talk about next week. Here's all I want you to see for today. The simple assessment that Paul makes of the divided Corinthian church. He's this. He says, you're spiritually immature. That's his assessment. When we think more like the world, like, like he's saying here, in merely human ways, we think more like that than like Christ. And as a result, we have division in the church that then mirrors the jealousy and strife of the culture. We are immature, plain and simple. We are immature. You're acting like babies is what he said there. You haven't grown in this area at all since you first came to the faith. Your growth has been stunted by your immaturity. Now, that is a, that is a pretty blunt assessment of the church, right? It's also tough love that every church needs to hear if they're in the same boat. Do, do you want to evaluate the maturity of, of our church? Paul gives some clues on how to do that. There's, there's an evidence of maturity or immaturity. Look at verse 10. Again, we're, we're still in chapter 3 here. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be, it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
Paul's saying this. He said, look, the foundation again, church, is Christ. That's what I laid. The foundation of Christ is Christ. But what are you now building on that foundation? And he makes this distinction here between what, what he would call you know, good works and bad works. Right? The, the gold and the, the precious metals, that's, that's good things that, that will stand the test. Right, The bad works would be the hay, the straw, the things that will be burned up, tested by the fire on the day of judgment. Are you building the good works or are you building on bad works? How do you know? Like, what are those good and bad works? I want to put up on the screen for you, I think Titus 3 is a, is a good help for us here. He uses very similar language, but he gets a little bit more specific as he's addressing Titus uh, in, in, the, in the chapter 3 there. He says this. He says, remind them, remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What, what are the good works that we're to be ready for? There they are. Then he, then he makes this contrast. For we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's like he had a glimpse there in the average day of the life in the life of an American on Facebook. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. When you're building on the foundation that is Christ, you're, you're building upon what, what has already been laid. You, this is who you are now in Christ. This is what he's done. You are his people. Act like it as you build towards love, unity, Compassion, charity, right? Care, concern. That's the good work. The next verse in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, he flips back to the bad work. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. That, that's an interesting statement there. That, that's very specific to what they were doing, but, but here's the bottom line. Quarrels about what makes you a better Christian than them. That's worthless. What's the prognosis for the immature? Again, verse 15. This is, this is sobering. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, he's saying here, look, if, you're, if you truly are a Christian, if you truly are one of God's children, you belong to him. Your salvation can't be upended by, by anything that you do, Right? However, you can suffer loss. You, you can live a, a life that, that's just lacking in, in joy and fellowship and love, right? And, and you, can, you can get to heaven and, and be saved, but just kind of know in your heart of hearts, like, I just got in purely on God's grace. My life didn't merit anything in terms of 
of well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to be that guy. Praise God for salvation and praise God for for grace that would get even that guy into heaven. I don't want to be that guy. That's one danger, right? Church, we don't want to be that guy, that gal, that people. But there's an even greater danger, and that greater is, the greater danger is a destroyed church. Look at verses 16 and 17, again, chapter 3. Do you not know that you're God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. How does division destroy a church? Destroy a church. Notice the shift here from being saved by fire in, in the previous verse, right? You're still you're a Christian to no, you're destroyed. In other words, you are not a Christian. There are are people who are in the church who who may think that they're believers, but by their divisiveness, by their willingness to destroy the body. And can you destroy God's church globally, universally? No. A local church? Yeah, you can. And here God is saying to that person, I will destroy you. He takes it very seriously. This person's gospel, this church's gospel, was not just obscured, it was abandoned. How? Again, it's about what is laid upon the foundation. Did we build on it? Or did we add to it? Did we add to it? Did we make cultural, secular, ideological, political, philosophical values so important that we, that we put them on par with faith in Christ and said, you can't be a Christian if you vote like this. You can't be a Christian if you affiliate with this. Something that we, we would say is not just... just you know, subservient to Christ, where we, could, we may challenge one another about things that we believe, but we would make it equal with Christ and say, if you are not like this, you can't be a Christian. Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. Galatians 1 makes that clear. Paul says there that that is an anathema, that it's someone who equates something else with Christ and makes it Jesus plus anything. He said that that person is to be a curse. That is not the gospel. This is so dangerous, it cannot be tolerated in the church of God. And in Titus chapter 3, the very next verses. Paul says this, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He is not a believer. Get him out. 
That, that's a whole different level of church discipline. I just want you to note that. Div- divisiveness, division brings on a, a very different set of rules for church discipline. There's no like, go to the person, give them a chance to repent. If they don't, take somebody else, do it again, bring them before the church. It's very simple. It's like, happens once, warn them, happens again, out. Because it's that serious. Which may make you wonder, like, why, what was going on with Chloe's people, right? Chloe's people come to Paul here, he says in chapter 1, and, they, and they, they've told me that there's divisiveness in the church. They're concerned. You might say, why didn't Chloe's people just come to the, the people who were doing the divisive stuff? Wouldn't that be the right first step to do? I think the answer to that is that, that the problem here is so widespread, probably there wasn't one person to go to. And it was such a dangerous issue, divisiveness, that this was worth elevating immediately to the, to the elders, to the shepherds of the church, to say, we have to do something about this or the church is in danger. And I think that's wholly appropriate. It's that serious. So we have a problem. We have a, a reason for that problem. We're immature. We've adopted too much of the world's way of thinking we have, we have a, 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 a way to think about how we exhibit maturity versus immaturity. Are we doing good things, loving, generous, kind, gracious things? Are we, are we being very destructive? Are we doing bad things? Are we breaking down? Are we hating? Are we causing division? And we see that there's a danger here. That danger is serious. God can destroy this church or any other that doesn't repent. So what's the solution? We're going to end with this. The solution is, of course, unity in Christ. I want to point you back to how many times Paul points this divided church back to their real, yet for some reason, yet unrealized unity in Christ. Go back to chapter 1, verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Chapter 1, verse 23. No, we preach Christ crucified. Chapter 1, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Chapter 2, verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 11, the foundation is Christ. Chapter 3, verse 23, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Again, this goes back to the opening verses of the letter. Do you remember who you are? Do you remember to whom you belong? Do you remember what the purpose of the church is? Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, and the church is the first fruit of that reconciliation. The church is the picture in the world today of the power of Christ through the cross and the resurrection to reconcile all things to himself. You are the new community, the community of love. That's what the church exists to be in the world today. Do you remember your identity in Christ? What is that remembering our identity in Christ due to division? Go back to, again, verse 10 of chapter 1 where he starts, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. 
that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, having the same judgment. Agree. Be of one mind. About what? About what? This brings up so many good questions. Does this mean that we we can never talk about or should never talk about cultural values? Should we never talk about political ideologies? Should Should we never discuss social issues? Should we never talk about race in the church, right? Because we can't, we're not all of the same mind, so we, we should just throw all that out. We can't agree on any of that stuff. Is, is, is that what it means to agree? I don't think so. Unity is not uniformity. Okay? Unity is not uniformity. Let me explain this, though. It, 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 it is recognizing this. What we agree on is who Christ is, who the church is, who we are, whom we belong to, what our highest value is, what our main purpose is. We agree on those things. Christ, Christ, Christ. We agree on the nature of the gospel, right? But we recognize this. This is where I think that this is a very helpful way for us to move forward as a church that, that wants to seek unity, even if there isn't uniformity in, you know, our own culture, our own political affiliate. That, that, that's okay. Here's the thing. We have to recognize there is an ideological best. There is. There, there is a mind of Christ that if, if we had the mind of Christ fully, we would see the world perfectly, Right? We would understand exactly what we ought to think and believe about social issues, political issues, and every other issue in life. There is an ideological best. But you got to recognize this too. I guarantee none of you have it. Not yet. None of you have it. And I think I could particularly say because of who we are, located where we are as 21st century Americans, wealthy generally compared to the the people who have lived throughout the history of the world, right? With a very particular kind of historical mindset, I can guarantee it, none of us have the ideal. Not yet. But we have the church, the unity of the body, even within the diversity that we also have to help each other to hear, to listen, to build one another up, to sharpen one another so that we can, in love, help each other come together towards that ideal. Rather than saying, I don't want to hear you, I disagree with you, and tear each other down. That's what the world does. To know that we have a unity in Christ and we're called to agree means that as we have faulty thinking, we help each other to pursue right thinking as a body. 
Unity is found ultimately around this, chapter 1, verse 17. Christ didn't send me to baptize, he says, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Where's our unity found? In the recognition that the power is found in the cross of Christ. The heart of the gospel, the cross of Christ that brings about new community, that reconciles broken, sinful people into one body, one family, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, where partisanship is done away with. And when we see that realized to its highest form, its highest level, when Jesus comes back and and the whole worldwide global historical church is gathered before him and worshiping, as we see in Revelation chapter 7, we see that, 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 that unity is not visible in uniformity in the way that they look or where they're from or what their cultural backgrounds are in, right? But that unity is found in their gathering together around the centrality that Jesus is everything. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all people, all languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Remember, remember the end of chapter, uh, or the beginning of chapter one last week we looked at, we said when Jesus comes back, he will not only sustain us, but we'll be found guiltless. Here it is. White robes, right? Picture of purity, palm branches in their hands, this picture of, of, of both praise and also peace. And crying out with a loud voice, one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And here's my closing thought. May God's will be done, church, on earth as it is in heaven. Father, help us. Help us to remember what you've called us to be through your Son. Forgive us, Lord, for participating in the divisiveness of this world. Forgive us for allowing our our, our minds and hearts to be so influenced by ideologies that are so far beneath our calling. Lord, would you protect the unity of this church? Would you protect the unity of the broader church? Lord, would you teach us to build on the foundation with love? Thinking more more of others than ourselves, of of seeking understanding, of, of compassion, of charity. Lord, would you help us to build that that we would display the ethic of Christ, the nature of Christ, that the world would see a light in the midst of darkness. Forgive us, Lord, that we've been so so many ways just as dark as the world. Forgive us, Lord, that the, the label of your church, the label of your church in our country right now speaks more about political alignment than it does about unity in Christ. 
Make us different. Make us better. Make us like Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen.